0: Today, we're going to focus in on one particular chapter. It's such an important and pivotal chapter in the flow of redemptive history. We're going to look at what God calls a man after his own heart. And when God labels somebody a man after his own heart, we ought to pay close attention. We ought to pay close attention. Last week, we saw a man after a man's own heart. Really, Saul was a man after Saul's own heart. And we can really put ourselves in that category. That is God's judgment on humanity. This is our problem, is we care too much about ourselves and our own agenda and our own theories and our own philosophies and our own comfort, our own happiness. And you would think with all that care about yourself we would be happy, satisfied people. But we find the opposite is true. It's completely counterintuitive. The more we focus on self, the more miserable we become. And yet, we think the solution is we need more focus on self. What's the old definition of crazy? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And we go to God's word and God says, no, the solution to your problems is to die to yourself, to put others before yourself, to consider others more important than yourself. And you're like, well, how is this going to fix my my problem? Because we don't understand that all this focus on self is the problem. It's not the means to the solution. It's causing the problem. And so last week we looked at three marks of a self-absorbed leader. Saul had a lack of submission to authority, especially God's authority, God's word. We saw that Saul had a lack of love for others, especially subordinates. The people he was called to lead, to serve, he took advantage of those people to exalt himself. He saw them only as a means to an end, as leverage towards exalting himself. And he didn't recognize when some of his commands and choices were hurting the people that he was supposed to lead and serve. Thirdly, we saw a lack of humility or sorrow for sin. When he was finally confronted in his sin, there was no godly sorrow, no brokenness. There was maybe sorry he got caught, or sorry he was going to lose the throne. But his ultimate concern, he begged the prophet Samuel, please return with me and really prop me up in front of the eyes of the people. Because at the end of the day, Saul cared more about what people thought of him than what God thought about him. Today we want to see the contrast, we want to see the opposite. We want to see a man after God's own heart and learn from this and evaluate our lives and, and see where we need to repent from being like Saul and start acting more like David. So let me begin reading First Samuel 16. We'll get halfway through the chapter, but it's an it's a interesting story, fascinating Story. So let me just read it to you as story. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one who I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So here's the scene. God has made it clear to Samuel that he has stripped Saul from the throne. And Samuel's grieving. Grieving over... Saul's disobedience. Anytime we see somebody steeped in sin and disobedience, we think that this time they'll get it. This this has got to be the time when they repent and they wake up and have their aha moment and grieve over their sins. And Saul did not have that aha moment. He didn't have that prodigal son moment where he came to his senses in the pigsty. And so it grieved Samuel to see a, a man stuck in his own sin. It also grieved him because Saul was the representative of God for the nation Israel to all the other nations, and to have a man like this as your leader grieved Samuel. But God is ready to move on, and so if he tells Samuel, How long will you grieve? I have sovereignly and providentially remove Saul from the throne. So get up, fill your horn with oil, meaning it's time to go anoint the new king. And he tells him to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, which means Samuel has to pass right through Saul's territory, right where Saul's headquarters. And Samuel, even being a mighty prophet, a man who just hacked King Agag to pieces, was afraid. Afraid, and... and God said, look, you're going to go make sacrifice before you anoint. And so God wasn't telling Samuel to lie at all. It was the truth. He was going to make sacrifices with Jesse's family. But afterwards, they would anoint a new king. And God has certainly revealed to Saul through Samuel that God has removed the kingdom from Saul and he has chosen another to be king. So those prophetic words have already been spoken to Saul. When Samuel arrives, the village is trembling because here is the man of God, uh, the man who was the judge of Israel before Saul became king, and a man certainly by this time, word has gotten out what Samuel did to Agag. And remember, we saw in the Hebrew that it wasn't just that he cut off Agag's head, but he hacked him to pieces. So you see the prophet approaching and you're like, Do you, are you here in peace or is somebody in trouble? And he says, no, I've come to sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. That was a, a ritual you would go through to cleanse yourself, a special way you would wash yourself because you were going to make sacrifices to the Lord and you don't take that lightly. You approach a holy God, you, you cleanse yourself first. And he goes to Jesse Consecrates him and all of his sons. Well, all of them except David. All of them except David. Certainly Samuel had told Jesse why he was there. And Jesse gathered up all the sons he thought would be candidates for the position of king. Let's read on. The story gets really interesting. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, this is the oldest of Jesse's sons. Samuel thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." Do you like to underline in your Bible? This is your cue. Underline. Highlight. Asterisk. Bold. Print it. Copy it. Hang it on your refrigerator. Hang it on your bathroom mirror. Hang it in your car. We need to hear this and hear it often. Even Samuel the prophet, whose heart is tuned to the things of God, Saul Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, surely, this must be the Lord's anointed. Tall, strong, probably confident. I mean, when you're the firstborn son in the Middle East, you are told your whole life that you are the man. That's got to instill confidence in you. It's got to go to your head. And so... I'm guessing Iliab was the kind of man that when he walked into a room, people noticed. There's the man. There's the guy in charge. Certainly, this will be the Lord's anointed. Samuel didn't know anything about Eliab. Nothing about his character. Nothing about his heart. Nothing about his intentions, his motives. Nothing about his obedience. Nothing about his love for God's word. Nothing about his compassion for other people. Even Samuel the prophet... So focused on external appearance. And we are all like that. Let's confess it now and admit it. We tend to judge with our eyes first and foremost. It's interesting to me that when God revealed himself to Moses in that special way up on the mountain and hid Moses in the rock and covered his eyes, he revealed himself to Moses by speaking to him and describing his character. I'm God who is slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. And yet I will not, I will not allow the iniquity of, of people to go unjudged or unpunished. So he reveals who he is to us by his character and his deeds not by outward appearance. Now, we know that outward appearances are important to this extent that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So we keep our church nice so when people come in, they don't immediately turn around and leave and say, these people are slobs, they obviously don't care much about what they're doing. And yet, if we put too much emphasis on external, we would never have time to work on the internal. And I would think that immediately, within a couple Sundays, people would figure that out. And if they're superficial, then they'll feel comfortable here. But if they're looking for deeper, then they'll find another church. So, we will continue to vacuum the carpets and repair replace things as need, and do things with excellence. I'll wear a tie and make sure I shower and comb my hair, and please do the same. (laughs) But if we stop there as the people of God, then, then how can we call ourselves the people of God? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So what happens after Eliab? Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And even David's own father. Thanks, Dad. Well, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's out tending the sheep. Behold. So he's, he's, he's in eye view. Well, there he is. Not much to look at. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. I was watching a video, in fact, I showed a, a video from Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you're familiar with his ministries. Great Christian apologist from India. Um, we were watching the video with the Heritage Heritage Oak School kids Friday in their apologetics class. And he was talking about um, uh, living in a world of relativism. But at one point during the Q&A, he was asked, what was your relationship like with your father? From your biography, I hear you were suicidal at age 18. And he said, yes, I was the youngest of five, and my father had absolutely no respect for me. My other four siblings... He had great respect for them. They went on to become medical doctors and and whatever, but he just always thought I would amount to nothing, and he abused him verbally and physically. He said the beatings were so bad that if his mom hadn't intervened, he's sure he would have suffered permanent damage. And in an honor-shame culture, the father thought the best way to shape my son up is to shame him into growing. You know, suck it up, man up, these kinds of things. And eventually, uh, the Lord found Ravi. He came to the Lord and he's become this great apologist. The people he has shared Christ with, you would not believe. And most of the time, he can't tell you the names of the people because it's presidents of, of countries and, and diplomats. And um, he's often asked to come and speak to these people. They directly say, I want you to come and speak because he's an Easterner with a message that they associate with the West. And he says at his graduation, his dad had come to the Lord, and finally his dad was proud of him. And he said, I was getting my first doctorate. (laughs) And I'm like, and you have to number your doctorates. (laughs) Um, And there his dad had thought, this son will never amount to anything. And once his dad became a Christian, realized that God... Has done more than he could ever think to even ask through his son, and he's a very unassuming figure when you look at Ravi Zacharias. But he has amazing love for God and a gift for articulating God's truth and answering any any question any skeptic might have. And so I was thinking of that as studying this this passage: "Don't judge a book by its cover." God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. We talked about, as we move through this election cycle, that now that everything is on video, it's pretty hard to stop and actually listen to what each of the candidates believe in their heart. Most of them can't even speak candidly because they know whatever comes out of their mouth, a little clip of it's going to, be cut out of context, and played over and over and over again. And this is the society we are living in. I think this line, that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, I think this is one of the most wonderfully terrifying lines in the Bible. At first, it's wonderful. You're like, finally, somebody I don't have to impress. I don't have to care if I'm wearing the latest fashions. I don't have to care if I'm tall enough or buff enough or tan enough or whatever enough. I'm so glad that this God looks on the inner man and not the outer man. And then I stopped in my tracks and reminded, oh no, I know what's in my heart. <laughs> there's some good, but there's some bad in there. Where we say, "How would you like it if the thoughts and intentions of your heart were on a big screen TV above your head, everywhere you went?" You know, children have no filter. They just blah. You know, we we might say embarrassing things. One day, one of our children in line at the grocery store saw an uh, African-American mom, and she said, oh, Mama, look at that baby. She's so brown and beautiful. And, uh, you know, you're like, want to get away? <laughs> but she, she meant it honestly. And the, the mother was actually very understanding and, and, and really encouraged. And Jennifer said, yes, she is a beautiful baby, isn't, isn't she? But we also know that sometimes our kids <laughs> say things uh, inappropriate. They don't know it's inappropriate. They just don't have that filter. We've also been noticing that when you get to the other end of life, the filter falls off too. Not as cute though, because you ought to know better. You're like, Dad, you can't say that. And I was like, What? Yeah. Yeah. It's what everyone was thinking. I was just honest enough to say it. But God knows everything about our hearts. Completely omniscient knows knows everything in our hearts. It's wonderfully terrifying so terrifying, Adam and Eve wanted to hide in the garden, right? They were naked and ashamed and tried to hide from God. And how wonderful to know that in Christ, this God who knows us completely inside and out, chooses us and accepts us in Christ. He didn't wait for us to clean up our outward appearance or our inward appearance. The Bible says that's how other people love, but God demonstrates His love in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, ugly and unlovely on the inside, Christ died for us. Christ loved the unlovely. Doesn't that give you satisfaction? and joy, and confidence. So much anxiety melts away. I can be real in front of my God. And because I can be real in front of my God, I can now be real in front of my Christian brothers and sisters and be honest about my struggles and ask you to pray for me and help me and keep me accountable and I can do the same for you. Because if God in Christ has chosen not to judge me, then how can we sit in judgment over one another? That's not to say we just let sin go and turn a blind eye. It means we're, we're honest about our sins and we put them in their proper place. That first and foremost, our sins are a sin against a holy God. And if anyone has the right to judge me, it's him. But instead of judgment and condemnation, I receive grace grace and mercy and justification through faith in Christ. If you don't have this peace this morning, why would you leave here without that? This is the answer to all that troubles you. Lay bare before the cross and receive God's acceptance through faith in Jesus Christ. If the inner man is more important to God than the outer man, and I don't know how he can make that any more clear to us, then we must ask ourselves this morning, how much time and attention are we dedicating to the improvement of our inner man? How much time and attention and money and resources are we dedicating to the improvement of our inner man? You are a beautiful group of people. I am quite convinced you spent plenty of time, resources, and money on your outer man This morning. And I appreciate you for that. You look great. But as human beings and Americans of all people, we know how much of our time can get swallowed up in in vanity, outward appearance, thinking too much about what I should put on my Facebook page so I can (laughs) really build myself up into somebody special. But who are we when nobody's looking? Who are we in those quiet moments when only God is observing? Who are we when we don't know others are observing? Spend your time improving the inner man, not to earn God's favor or his salvation. We've already been given that gift, but in our sanctification, We should be spending our time working on the inner man. That's what God cares about. The outer man is passing away. They're temporary bodies. Trying to keep ourselves beautiful on the outside is a losing proposition. You can't fight gravity. (laughs) But the inner man lasts forever. Are we preparing ourselves for eternity? or just the next photo shoot. Living in an increasingly materialistic and superficial culture means that we must be intentional about feeding our inner man with the means of grace God has provided for our spiritual health and growth. What are the means of grace? Reading God's Word, meditating on His Word, prayer, meeting together as Christians, worshiping together, studying God's Word together, evangelism, discipleship, serving, meeting the needs of others. This is what builds up and cultivates the inner man. If you're miserable, I can tell you most of your problems are you're focusing too much time on yourself and temporary issues. So, three marks of a leader after God's own heart. So here, here God is pointing to this kid out in the field that we really don't know much about. And he said, now that's a man after my own heart. Well, I want to know then, what's David's heart like? God, give me more information. Well, let's keep reading and find out what God tells us about David. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. What? That's external. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So he's a good-looking kid. Ruddy, uh, the root in the Hebrew, reddish. Maybe he had red hair, maybe kind of a rosy glow, maybe a bronze tan from being out with the sheep. Beautiful eyes, that's a euphemism for being a real looker. Remember what the Bible had to say about um, Leah, that she was dim in the eyes, a little weak in the eyes, Hebrew euphemism for it. <laughs> yeah. So he's a good-looking kid, but not such that anybody thought he would be the Lord's anointed. I don't know. Maybe we would say he was cute. There's a cute kid. Would you follow him into battle? <laughs> no. In fact, when he said, I'll fight Goliath, everybody was dumbfounded, and that's ridiculous. So I would really love to know more about David's heart because I want to know what a man after God's own heart is like. And I need to know the pattern of his life. I need lots of information about David's life. I can't really know what's in your heart until I see the pattern of your life, until I see fruits of the Spirit Fruits of repentance. And even then, I can't say exactly what's in your heart. Be on guard against that beloved, saying, I know what's in their heart. There's nothing worse than having somebody judge your heart and having them judge it wrong. That kind of injustice is probably one of the most terrible feelings I've ever experienced. Now, if you judge my heart and you get it right, that doesn't feel good either, but at least it's true. But when somebody says, I know why you did that, and and you really had good intentions, eh, that hurts. Paul even says, I don't even judge my own intentions. I'm waiting for God to tell me at the judgment seat. Remember, believers will stand before a judgment seat. The first judgment seat, we already know we're justified. We're in heaven. But there's a second judgment seat where all of our deeds and words are judged, and there's rewards There's rewards, and what we do here matters in the time we are given. I don't know what those rewards are, but we can trust God that he gives good gifts. Well, fortunately, we get a lot of narrative about David and his life, and we'll spend the next few weeks looking at David's life. But even more importantly, if you really want to know what's in David's heart, read the Psalms. At least 75 of the 150 psalms were written by David. And we we think probably others were written by David, but they don't have his name on it. But we can tell by the vocabulary and, and the style that it was probably also a psalm of David. 75 songs of David pouring out his heart to God in various situations in life. And boy, David found himself in just about every situation imaginable. What's the first mark, then, of a leader after God's own heart? The first and most important mark is a high view of God's scripture and obedience to authority. A high view of God's scripture and obedience. They're a package deal. They're not three marks. They're one mark. You see someone struggling to obey God's word and doesn't want to obey God's word or haphazardly treats God's word, I'll tell you, they have a low view of God and a low view of his word. This high view, low view language comes from the reformers, and I I really like this language. A high view of God. We ought to have a high view of God, a high view of scripture, and a high view of obedience to God's word. And if you have those things, you will end up having what we call a low view of man, instead of a high view of man. In one sense, we have a high view of man that he's created in God's image and he's special. But when we say you should have a low view of man, we mean you should have a low view of man's exaltedness. Man's problem is that he has a high view of himself and that he has a very low view of sin. And you're saying, shouldn't I have a low view of sin? Sin is bad. By a low view of sin, we mean some people treat sin as no big deal, as a mistake, an oops. God has a very high view of sin. How do we know God has a high view of sin? Because He would give His own life to remedy the problem of sin. The most precious thing to God is His own life. And so we know that if the sacrifice was that steep, then sin is that bad. And so we need a high view of sin, and the Scripture gives us a high view of sin. It's not to be taken lightly. Listen to what David writes about God. Let's take a sampling from the Psalm. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Just one of the openings uh, to one of his psalms. A high view of God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. We saw in Saul that Saul wanted to make his name great in all the earth. Remember, he said, nobody eats today until I have been avenged of my enemies. But we'll see when David goes up against Goliath, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine talking smack about our God? Didn't care that he was ten feet tall. God won't allow this to happen. God's name and His majesty and His glory is the most important thing. And listen to David's view of God's Word. He had a high view of God's Word. In fact, Psalm 119, he penned a poem dedicated to exalting the Word of God. He took every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and wrote eight lines, each beginning with that letter. So you have 24 letters in the Hebrew alphabet times 8. It's a long psalm, right? Last year at the Shepherd's Conference, the theme was the inerrancy of Scripture, and it was about magnifying God's Word and taking a high view of God's Word. Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist was assigned to exegete parts of Psalm 119, because there's no way you could preach on the whole psalm. He ended up reading the entire psalm. Partway through, we were all like, is he going to read the whole thing? And then like two-thirds of the way through, you're like, yes, he is. Go, go. It was the most glorious thing. And he, he gave a few words of commentary at the end, but really he probably could have just stopped. And the entire room, many men, and there were four to 5,000 men at that conference last year, said that was the highlight of the conference. Psalm 119.33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Notice how he couples God's word with obeying God's word. There's no point in having God's word if you don't intend to obey it. I want you to understand this morning that as Christians, we would all understand, of course, we should have a high view of God and a high view of His Word and a high view of obeying His Word. That is the Sunday school answer. Don't assume that you have a high view of God, a high view of Scripture, and a high view of obedience. Saul thought he had those things. In fact, when he was confronted by Samuel, why haven't you obeyed? What did he say? I did. Then what is the bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And why is King Agag still alive? Obviously, to exalt yourself. Many churches would affirm, yes, the Bible, God's word. And then the Bible never gets opened, sadly. Sadly. So, it's not natural for us to have a high view of God and a high view of His Word. Our fallen nature is against these ideas. We need to know that about ourselves and take steps to counteract that. Don't assume this is your default position. If we've learned anything about mankind from the story of God in Genesis 3, it's that we should have a suspicion towards our own heart. A suspicious heart that we really think we're obeying, but we're really obeying ourselves. That was Adam and Eve. Did God really say you would die? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God's. And we've carried that with us. I wanted to read Psalm 19 to you because I think this is the best picture of Exalting God, exalting His Word, and then striving to obey God's Word. If you want to turn to Psalm 19. Instead of reading Psalm 119, we'll read Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the works of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So he's exalting God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Listen up, people. Wake up. We live in this glorious place, Tehachapi, with these beautiful mountains. And at night we can see all these stars. They're screaming out to us of the glory of the powerful God who created all of these things just by speaking them into existence. And yet, even though they're speaking to us because they're not using actual words, we don't know exactly what they're saying. So David turns the psalm and he says. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge, but there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. It sounds like he's contradicting himself, but he He's saying, we need to know more about this God. We need more than just creation. We need a personal relationship with this God. We need Him to speak to us. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run His course. Its rising is from one end of the the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So this revelation of God's glory, nobody can escape it. No matter where you live on earth, man is without excuse, Paul writes in Romans 1. And so now he transitions from general revelation of creation to the special revelation of God's word. He's going to exalt now and take a high view of God's word. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. At the end of the psalm, transitioning to a high view of obedience to God's word. If you have a high view of God, you will have a high view of his word. If you respect other people, you will listen to what they have to say with interest, right? You can't say, I respect you, and then ignore what people have to say. And certainly, if those people are in authority over you, you cannot say, I respect your authority, and then ignore their words or ignore obedience to their words. It's a package deal. And so this is the first mark of a leader after God's own heart. is he has a high view of God, knowing that His authority is delegated from sovereign God. Nobody is an autonomous leader. There should be no autocrats among us, and yet our sin nature would have us be just that. Do what I want to do, whenever I want to do, however I want to do it. Saul had a low view of God and his word, in a low view of obedience. God is concerned with his own glory, and that is not selfish. That is the way it should be. Nobody's glory matches God, so we want a God who glorifies himself. I know in our fallenness we often want God to glorify us. God make me special, God, make me a leader. God, make me you know win this. Give me an A plus on my test, not to exalt you or bring glory to you if we're honest with ourselves. Even in ministry, where we think our motives are pure, often it's to exalt self. God cares about obedience. And you say, well, that's easy for God. He didn't have to obey anyone. Within the Trinity, God the Son perfectly obeyed the Father. Having to obey does not imply inferiority. Let me repeat that. Having to obey does not imply inferiority. Jesus wasn't inferior to the Father. He submitted to the Father's will. Our egalitarian society says that if you're not in charge, then you're not equal with other people. It's not true at all. Absolutely not true. At this point, I need to take a little excursus because we're going to read what many people find to be a very troubling passage, and I don't want to send you home confused. Back to the story of David's anointing. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. It's a very troubling Passage. Very troubling if we don't explore it more deeply. We get all caught up in God sending an evil spirit to terrorize Saul. The word evil in the, in the Hebrew can also mean um, bad, distressing. It has a very wide semantic range. evil will work in the sense that you don't want this spirit. (laughs) And it's in contrast to the spirit of God that Saul used to have when he was anointed king. And so God at certain times, we'll see in the Old Testament, would send his spirit for a special purpose to indicate or authenticate Somebody's authority or to give them special power to fulfill a special calling. We saw the judges in the book of Judges. The spirit of the Lord would come on a judge temporarily and they would perform great feats. So you get that the spirit of the Lord comes to authenticate someone's authority or to endue them with power for a special mission. When Saul disobeyed God, the Spirit of the Lord left him. And we see it went on to David. So first and foremost, this passage is highlighting the transition between Saul as king and David as king. Saul was not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on him the Old Testament never uses the language of the Holy Spirit indwelling Old Testament people. That is a New Testament gift after the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers, indwells. If you have authentic faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Convicting you of sin, enlightening your eyes to understand Scripture and obey Scripture. And as a pledge, a down payment, Paul says, so you can have confidence in your salvation. The Holy Spirit does not come in and out, in and out, in and out of us. If you are an authentic believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and will take you all the way to the day of your glorification. He was Saul was not possessed by this evil spirit. It did not take up residence inside of him. It tormented him. Do we see people in the Bible indwelt by evil spirits? Yes, there was demon possession. We saw a lot of it when? In the Gospels, when Jesus was here and he cast out demons from many people and the apostles cast out demons from many people, but never do we see the apostles are Jesus casting a demon out of a New Testament believer indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. Never ever formulate a major doctrine from one story or one passage from the Bible. Scripture clarifies Scripture. And we always use more clear and more direct scriptures to clarify less clear, indirect scriptures. So no one ought to read this passage and go home and, and if you're struggling with something, saying, God missed a sentient evil spirit to terrorize me. I don't want anyone going home being afraid to be in their own home. Be afraid if you're in sin against God. Repent of it, turn from it, receive his forgiveness, put off the old man, put on the new. These are things that the New Testament instructs us to do. I was excited to take the church to go see the war room with one caveat. You do not need to replicate the scene where she is casting Satan out of her home. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. These people said they were Christians. What I will agree with is that in as much as we disobey God and give into the flesh, we are giving into Satan's plan for the world. And so in that sense, we are allowing Satan to have influence over our lives when we disobey Scripture. And when we adopt the ways of the world. That was certainly a very powerful and dramatic scene. But you go down that path and you will find yourself in fear every night of, well, how do I know he's not here? And how do I know he's gone? And how do I know he's not hiding? And how do I know he's not pretending to be somebody good because he is a deceiver? And pretty soon Satan becomes sovereign over your life instead of God. God is sovereign. Satan can't do a single thing without God's permission. The devil is God's devil, the reformers said. So God providentially sent an evil spirit to torment Saul for a specific purpose. His complete purpose and plan we don't have revealed to us, but we do know this much Part of his plan was so that David would be brought in to play the harp to calm Saul down. So in God's providence, he brought David into the court of Saul so that the royal assembly would start to see Saul contrasted with David without any of the awkwardness of anyone knowing that David had been anointed king and was going to be replacing Saul. The people got to see the heart of Saul and the heart of David on display in front of them. I think it would also be safe to assume that God brought this, this, this demon to um, encourage Saul to repent and turn as a punishment God disciplines those that he loves. We never do find out with exactness in the Bible whether or not we're going to see Saul in heaven. We could have great discussion over coffee about it, and at the end of the day, we still wouldn't know. But it is an interesting point of conversation. We'll leave it up to God. That's his prerogative. But what about believers today? New Testament believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They may be oppressed or afflicted by an evil spirit, but not possessed or indwelt by one. This is a rare occurrence allowed by God for a specific purpose. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, he said, was a messenger from Satan to keep him humble. It had a purpose to keep him humble. He said, I know a man who... Spirit got to go up to the highest heaven and see God. Boy, wouldn't that make any of us proud. So what would you do last night? I can top that story, right? So God brought a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh. Paul prayed three times for it to be removed. God said, my grace is sufficient. Paul understood it was to keep him humble. He realized he had a pride problem. The New Testament epistles never teach us, never. I can put that in all caps. Rarely can I say always or never. But I can say with confidence that the epistles never teach us that the process of sanctification for New Testament believers includes the search for hidden demons or the binding or casting out of demons. Yes, we may come across an unbeliever who is being indwelt, By a demon. And the way we would attempt to cast that out is to not bind or rebuke, but to tell the person, not the demon. We don't speak to demons. We would say, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from sin and receive the Holy Spirit, be saved. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates them, the demon will flee because the, de- the Holy Spirit will not share a house with unclean demons. Instead, we are instructed to take every thought captive for Christ as believers, put off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ Jesus. These are the instructions given the church for sanctification. And the other two marks here, mark number two of a leader after God's own heart is a sacrificial love for subordinates, sacrificial love for others and for subordinates. The very people you're called to lead, you should have sacrificial love for them. David risked his own life to protect his sheep. That's where he got his training. He, he started with sheep and the Bible tells us that sheep, that's a great training ground for leading people. That's very humbling for us. We're, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. God has to lead us to the, the still waters because we want the drama. He has to lead us to the green pastures because we'll eat the poisonous weeds if left to our own devices. We find out that David risked his life and even killed uh, uh, bears and lions to protect his sheep. David risked his own life to protect Israel and defend God's glory against Goliath when nobody else would stand up to Goliath. And David risked his own life time and time again to reconcile with Saul. He had numerous opportunities to kill Saul and get this murderous man off of his back, his murderous father-in-law, father of his best friend Jonathan. It takes great love To not repay evil with evil. And the one time he thought about repaying evil for evil, he felt really terrible afterwards and asked for Saul's forgiveness. Saul was chasing down David. Saul went into a cave and he had to relieve himself because people in the Bible are real people with real bodily functions. And David saw his opportunity to kill Saul And he decided not to, but he did take a piece of Saul's cloak to prove to Saul that I had my chance, but I showed mercy on you. And then he felt really bad that he would humiliate the former king of Israel, really the acting king of of Israel, and ask God and Saul for forgiveness. Leading doesn't mean getting your way. If you want a position of leadership, get that through your head. It doesn't mean getting your way. If you're like, man, if if I could just be in charge, then everything would get done the right way. That's not what leadership is about. It often means giving others their preference, as long as it's not sinful, in order to accomplish the greater goal God has set out for your endeavors. Often a leader says, Okay, we, we, we could do it that way. It's not the way I would do it. But if you're always doing things the way you want to do it, before you know it, you won't be leading anyone. You'll, you'll be an army of one. And often in the position of leadership, you are an easy target for criticism. And yet godly leaders choose to love even when those you lead attack or complain or grumble. But I must issue a warning after saying that don't assume every time thing goes bad it's because the people you're leading are attacking you for no reason. It could be you, the leader, that is the problem. How will you know the difference? You need to be able to talk to To people and ask for their insight and their opinion. Do you see something I don't see? And don't just go to all the people you know who are going to see things your way. That doesn't count. There's too much at stake here. And we can't have a world or a church without leaders. It's been tried. It doesn't work. Somebody eventually has to step forward and lead. And so... We endeavor to lead the way Christ leads. The third mark here, humility and true sorrow over sin. Now, Jesus is our example of humility, but he never had to repent of sins because he never sinned. But all other human leaders will sin. David, oof, he he did a doozy. And we'll, we'll read about that in a couple of weeks. But how did he respond when he was confronted in sin? You can read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Be gracious to me, O God. This is Psalm 51. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So you don't just push it aside against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. First and foremost, all of our sins are against God. Only he is holy. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, meaning I can't go before God and he judge me and say, no, I think you're wrong on this one, God. His judgments are perfect. Read Philippians 2 this week. Meditate on Philippians 2 and and look at how Christ humbled himself all the way to the cross. Meditate on Philippians 2. So these are the three traits of a leader after God's own heart. A high view of God, Scripture, and obedience to Scripture. A love, a sacrificial love for others and a humble heart that is quick to acknowledge sin. Notice none of these marks describe anything external. And to drive this point home, I want to close with this. There's only one physical description of Jesus in the Bible. Not including what he looked like on the cross when he was bleeding and but one true physical description of Jesus. I know we see people painting portraits of Jesus and sometimes he's got brown eyes and sometimes he's got blue eyes and sometimes he's white and sometimes he's black or every other shade of brown you could think of. Long hair, short hair, wavy hair. We don't know. And in fact, maybe the Ten Commandments tells us we shouldn't be painting pictures of, of Jesus. Jesus. So what is that passage that does describe his physical appearance? It's actually in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And it reads this, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The King of kings, Lord of lords, humble externally, not much to look at, but everything that counts and matters to God in his heart, this is the people God wants us to be. Let's, let's pray. Father, God, make us like this. May we care less about our external appearance. Make our hearts into a heart like Jesus. We want to be known as people after God's own heart. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, happy Thanksgiving to all of you, and I'll see you next Sunday.